things you'll never hear mothers say, right? Well, happy Mother's Day again to uh, all of the moms here with us. Uh, We're so blessed to have you in our lives, and we uh, just thank the Lord for you. Uh, My mom's probably watching online this morning, and so I want to say a special greeting and hello to mom. I love you, mom. Thank you for being such a blessing in my life, and uh, I hope to see you soon. I love you. Well, friends, uh, what a great day it is today, and uh, thank you for joining us for worship. If we haven't met, my name is Jason Carlson. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, as we begin this morning uh, looking at God's Word together, continuing our series in the Gospel of John, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Let's ask God's blessing as we turn to His Word, and uh, that the Holy Spirit would just uh, illuminate His truth for us and give us a fresh vision of who God is in all of His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to worship you. Thank you again for our great moms. And Lord, we love them and bless them and encourage them on this Mother's Day. As we turn our hearts now to your word, Lord, we just pray that you would once again open our eyes to the power of your truth that uh, you would reveal to us in this great scene of Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, some of his last hours on this earth with his followers before his crucifixion. Lord, may you open our eyes to these great truths and the ways that we see your glory displayed here in this passage. And so, Lord, I pray for your help in communicating, Lord. May I do this clearly and faithfully, and may you give all of my friends here this morning and those watching online uh, open hearts and open minds to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I grew up at Wooddale Church out in Eden Prairie, and uh, one of the rites of passage there when you are growing up in student ministries at Wooddale Church is there is a trip that all of the ninth graders take uh, as they are graduating out of junior high into high school called Project Canada. And Project Canada is a trip where uh, all of the ninth graders load up on coach buses and they drive up into uh, the far north of the Canadian Rockies, north of Banff, uh, if you know that area of Alberta. And uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful area. And so uh, I had the chance as a ninth grader to go on this trip. We, we go up there and we work at this Christian camp and we basically do all kinds of repairs and maintenance and get things ready for the start of the camp season. Uh, this is a camp the church supported as, uh, as missionaries. And uh, great experience, lots of fun, uh, fun experiences on that. I had the chance to do that as a ninth grader. And then again, when I was in college working as a youth intern there, I had the chance to go and, and be one of the chaperones on this trip. Now, if you have ever had the chance to drive west through Canada on what is known as the Trans-Canadian Highway, uh, Highway 1 in Canada, goes all the way across uh, North America, the the country of Canada, there are some incredible scenes that you'll see as you journey west. Uh, We headed up uh, through North Dakota, then cut up north into Saskatchewan. And on this stretch from Saskatchewan into Alberta, they call this area Big Sky Country for a reason. I mean, you can just see for miles and miles, and there are stretches of this road where, I mean, you'll go you know, for hours before seeing the next town. It's just incredible how vast and how open this space is. Well, when you're on a 24-hour coach bus ride, right, those buses don't stop. And so we were going nonstop through the Canadian countryside headed towards Banff, Alberta, and... At night, we fell asleep as we're driving through the darkness of Saskatchewan. And I remember looking outside those coach bus windows into the darkness thinking, 
This is the darkest dark I've ever seen in my life. I mean, just imagine that, that vast expanse, no cities anywhere, just pitch black darkness. It was incredible. The darkest dark I've ever seen. Well, as we're driving on this coach bus, all of a sudden, I had fallen asleep. All of a sudden, I started hearing all this excitement, all, this, all these uh, gasps of enthusiasm. And, and, and I woke up, and I looked out the window, and I saw the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. Out in the sky, in the midst of this darkness, were streaks of greens and pinks and purples just splashing across the heavens. I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. It was absolutely incredible. I mean, really almost supernatural looking. These colors dancing across the sky in the midst of this darkness. Well, you can probably imagine I was seeing the, the aurora borealis, the northern lights. But, but there in the far north of Canada, they were so brilliant. It, it literally just took my breath away. I was mesmerized watching for, for hours these lights dancing through the skies. It was an incredible night, the darkest night I've ever seen. But at the same time, the most brilliant display of God's glory. <clears throat> Excuse me. The most brilliant display of God's glory that I had ever seen as well. I was thinking about that this week as I studied our passage for this morning. Because the passage that we're going to come to this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John, we're going to find ourselves in what was the darkest night of Jesus' incarnation. The, the darkest night that Jesus and his disciples would ever experience together. It was a dark night filled with betrayal and sadness and disbelief. A night that would culminate in the arrest and torture of the Prince of Peace. And yet, in the midst of this darkest of nights, as we're going to see this morning, God's glory was shining through in brilliant ways. We're going to see the, the brilliance of God's glory in our passage this morning. We're going to see it in four ways. We're in John chapter 13. Today we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 38. And if you recall, we find ourselves here at the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. And, and over the next five chapters in the Gospel of John, John is going to record Jesus' teachings in what is known as his farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. Five chapters that cover only a span of a few hours but John highlights these chapters and, and the teachings that we're going to see today because they were so crucial for us to understand who God is and what he desires for us as his people and, and, and how he calls us to live in this world as his ambassadors. And, and so these are very central teachings of Christ. Well, if you recall from last week, Jesus had just modeled his great love to his disciples. He had modeled his love, his sacrifice, his humility, his service by, by getting down on his knees and washing his disciples' feet, displaying for them the kind of love that he then asked them to live out amongst one another. That same humble, self-sacrificial kind of love Jesus called his disciples to live. And, and now we pick up in verse 18 of chapter 13. Jesus had just said to his disciples, blessed will you be if you do these things that he had just taught them. But then he goes on and he says, I am not speaking of all of you. 
Not all of you will be blessed, Jesus says to his disciples. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus is revealing here to his disciples that that not all of them are true disciples. Of the 12 gathered there with him, not all of them were really truly with him. He goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is probably the apostle John here, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask of Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This was the darkest night of Jesus' incarnation. The darkest night that Jesus and his disciples would ever share. And yet, here in our passage this morning, we see the brilliance of God's glory piercing through in the midst of this darkness. We see the brilliance of God's glory in four particular ways in our passage this morning. Number one, in the midst of this darkest of nights, we see the glory of God's plan. The glory of God's sovereign plan. Let me ask you this morning, friends, how many of you here have ever been betrayed by someone you love? How many of you here have ever been betrayed by someone you trusted? If you've ever had that experience, you'll know that there are few feelings in the world worse 
than the feeling of being betrayed and, and the pit that forms in your stomach upon learning of that kind of disloyalty. One of the names in American history that has become synonymous with betrayal is the name Benedict Arnold, Major General Benedict Arnold. You may recall his story, the famous traitor, the infamous traitor of the American Revolution. Many people, however, know of Benedict Arnold's infamy as a traitor to our country, but, but most people don't know the backstory to Benedict Arnold. You see, Benedict Arnold was a major general in the Continental Army and very likely saved the colonies in the early years of the American Revolution. Benedict Arnold was a pivotal commander in a number of military victories that literally preserved George Washington's Continental Army from defeat and destruction. He was one of the greatest commanders of the Continental Army. But Major General Benedict Arnold felt slighted by the Continental Congress. He felt that in spite of all of his great victories, he had been repeatedly passed over for promotions to, to the rank of a full general, and he felt that lesser men had been promoted over him. And so in his jealousy, Benedict Arnold began to hatch a scheme, a plot, where he was going to betray his country and pledge his loyalty to the king of England. And so he began to hatch a scheme where he would literally give over one of our nation's most strategic forts, West Point, on the Hudson River in New York, to the British in exchange for prominence as a general in the British Army. Well, this scheme, through a number of fortuitous circumstances, was ultimately discovered. And when it was discovered that one of Washington's greatest commanders, a major general in the Continental Army, when he was discovered and this plot was discovered, it shocked Washington's inner circle. It shocked the entire nation discovering this prominent commander's betrayal. And I can imagine in the early hours following Jesus' arrest that the remaining 11 disciples experienced that very same sense of shock and were likely very acutely aware of that sinking feeling you get in your stomach, that, that, that pit, that, that mix of despair and confusion that comes from betrayal. However, it was in the midst of these shocking events that one thing becomes abundantly clear in our passage this morning. You see, all of this, all of these circumstances, all of these events were playing out according to the sovereignly orchestrated plan of God. The disciples might not have recognized that in the moment, but, but there was nothing about this scene. There was nothing about Judas's betrayal or the devil's schemes that unfolded outside of God's glorious plan to bring the hope of salvation to the world. We, we see this right at the outset of our passage this morning, that God's plan was unfolding. The Lord was in control all the way along. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus declares to his disciples, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus says. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Here, Jesus wants to explain and demonstrate to his disciples that what was about to happen to him was not by chance. It was not an accident. It was not a subversion of his will, but rather everything happening that night was happening according to the foreordained plan of God. And to highlight this reality, Jesus quotes for his disciples here Psalm 41.9, a psalm of lament by King David, a psalm that David wrote upon his betrayal at the hand of one of his closest friends. And so Jesus takes this psalm where David is lamenting his betrayal And he applies it to himself, taking it as a messianic prophecy to encourage his disciples to recognize what was about to take place was all a part of God's preordained plan. He quotes David and he says, the one who has taken my bread has lifted his heel against me. In other words, like the swift kick of a donkey that you don't expect coming. Jesus says, that's what the betrayal of my friend is like. And how will you know it's the one who takes my bread? And then Jesus says in verse 19, I'm telling you these things ahead of time before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Very interesting. In the original Greek, I am he, the he is not there. The he is not there in the original Greek. In the original Greek, Jesus says, I am telling you these things so that you may believe, ego eimi, I am. Jesus is declaring that he is the great I am. That was the Old Testament name for God that God gave to Moses. Moses says, God, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, look at all of this stuff is going to unfold according to God's sovereign plan, and I'm telling you this in advance so that when you see it, when you recognize these things taking place, you will know that I am. I am God. I'm the one in control. I am the one who has ordained all of this. And so following this revelation, Jesus goes on in the next five, six verses, 21 through 26, and he identifies his betrayer as Judas. He dips the bread. Judas takes the bread. The one who takes the bread is the one who will betray me, Jesus declares. And then in verse 27, Jesus goes on and he literally commands Judas to go and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. Judas may have been under the influence of Satan, friends, but he was always under the authority and control of God's sovereign plan. None of this took place outside of God's will and purpose. Now again, none of his disciples understood these words or happenings in the moment, but following Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection from the grave, the glory of God's plan would ultimately become brilliantly clear to them. They would get it. In fact, just a couple weeks after the resurrection on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, in Acts chapter 2, we find Peter standing before the people of Jerusalem. 
And Peter says in his sermon on Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, look at this wasn't an accident. You may have crucified him. Lawless men may have been responsible, but all of this transpired according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Apostle Peter in the book of 1 Peter and the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, both of these apostles tell us that this plan was hatched before the foundation of the world. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. They both tell us this plan was put in place by God before the foundation of the world, before he even created anything. This was God's sovereign plan. Now, friends, please understand this morning, there's an important application here for us when we think about the sovereign orchestration of God's glorious plan of salvation. You see, just like Jesus' disciples... We won't always recognize God's plans and purposes in the midst of the circumstances of our lives. Like John describes here in verse 30, and it was night. There are going to be many times in our lives where we're going to feel like it is night. Like the darkness is engulfing us. And the darkness and the despair and the questions and the concerns are just going to feel so overwhelming. And we're going to ask, like Jesus' disciples, Lord, what is going on? This isn't the way it was supposed to work out. And we won't always understand these things, friends. Why God does what he does. Or why he allows certain trials to come into our lives. But it's in the darkest of nights, friends, that we need to hang on to hope and keep our faith and trust in him. As God told the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8, God says, my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. We won't always understand God's will, his plan, his purpose. The apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28 tells us that God is always at work. Even in our darkest nights, God is always at work, Paul says, in all things for the good of those who love him. Even when we don't understand. Even when the darkness of night comes. Friends, you better believe the glory of God's sovereign plan is always shining. It's shining brilliantly. Hold on to hope. Keep your eyes on him. The second way we see the glory of God breaking through in the midst of this darkest of nights, we find, number two, the glory of God's Son. The glory of God's Son. 600 years before the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish prophet who ministered God's truth to the people of Israel when they were in exile in the land of Babylon. This prophet's name was Daniel. And during Daniel's ministry, Daniel had a number of prophetic visions. 
visions of of things that would transpire in the future. In one of these prophetic visions, Daniel sees a vision of someone that he describes as one who looked like the son of a man, like the son of man. And listen to what Daniel says about this one who looked like a son of man in his vision. It's found in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has this vision in the night. I had a night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Someone who came in in human form, Daniel's saying here. One who looked like a man. And he came to the ancient of days, to to God, and, and God in his throne room. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Daniel saw in this vision. Now, now who is this son of man that Daniel saw? Well, friends, we find the answer in verse 31 of our passage this morning. In verse 31, Jesus goes on. After Judas had gone out, Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, Now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus is saying that he is now fulfilling what Daniel saw. Daniel, in his prophetic vision 600 years earlier, of this one who looked like a Son of Man, glorified before God in the throne room of heaven, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He was the son of man that Daniel prophesied. And he would be glorified by the Father and bring glory to the Father. Jesus' words here take us back to John chapter 12, verse 23. We were there just a few weeks ago. And if you remember, Jesus said there, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, if you remember that that message that morning, Jesus was referring there to his impending crucifixion and his resurrection. And friends, it was at the cross where Jesus would bring glory to his Father. And he would be glorified by the Father. Now, some of you might be thinking this morning, well, how on earth could any glory come from a brutal, torturous death like a crucifixion. I mean, there, there have been few ways devised by man uglier, few uglier ways to torture and kill someone than crucifixion. How, how could any glory come from this? But you see, friends, it's at the cross. It's at the cross where God's ultimate self-revelation to humanity is revealed. It's at the cross where we find the glory of God in all of its fullness. As Matt Carter says in his commentary on the Gospel of John, I had to just quote this one because it was so good this week. Matt Carter says, In the cross we learn more about God's excellence than in any other moment in history. In the death of Jesus we see God's holiness and love. 
his righteousness and mercy, his justice and grace, his sovereignty and his humility, his wisdom and patience, if we want to understand God, we must study the cross. Friends, there was no greater revelation of God's glory in all of its fullness than at the cross. The cross was the epitome of glory for God. And because of his obedience, God the Father glorified the Son, who, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? The joy set before him was his glorification and exaltation by God the Father. The Apostle Paul describes this exaltation in Philippians chapter, Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 23, further explains this exaltation, this glorification. He says, and God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, do you understand the significance of the glorification of the Son? Do you understand the significance of the reality that Jesus has been exalted in glory. Do you know what that means for you today? Do you understand this morning, friends, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have access to the throne room of heaven. You have an ever-present audience with the one who rules and reigns over all things. And one day... One day, the Bible tells us you're going to have a front row seat to that great day when every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And friends, this Jesus, this king above all kings, this name above all names, he cares for you. He cares for you. How incredible, friends. This is why the Apostle Paul, writing from a prison cell in Rome, in Philippians chapter 4, could declare, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why can we rejoice in the Lord always, no matter our circumstances, no matter what we might face? It's because the King of glory rules and reigns over everything that transpires in this world today. There is nothing that takes place in our lives or in this world that is outside of God's providential care. 
And so this is why Paul, as he's in chains in a prison in Rome, tells his friends in the church, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, how could Paul say that with such confidence? It's because he knew the risen King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who today rules and reigns in glory. If that doesn't give you hope today, I don't know what will, friends. Jesus is the King of Kings. The third way that we see God's glory shining into this darkest of nights is found in verses 34 and 35. We see the glory of God's will, the glory of God's will for his people. In verses 34 through 35, Jesus once again returns to our theme from last week. If you remember, what was that theme? Jesus shared with his disciples his glorious will for his people. What was his will for us? That we humble ourselves like he humbled himself. That we serve one another sacrificially. That we love one another being totally committed to the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here he picks up that theme once again in verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I have given you, that you love one another. Love one another, Jesus says to his disciples. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus calls this a new commandment. You might be thinking to yourself, well, how, how on earth is this a new commandment? I mean, the Bible is full of commands to love. I mean, all the way back in Leviticus chapter 18, God told his people, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, love is all over the Bible, right? But Jesus was giving his disciples a new commandment. How so? It was a new commandment in the fact that Jesus gave us a new object for our love. It was our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are called to love. It was the church, the body of Christ here that Jesus is calling his disciples to love. And it wasn't just a new object, but there was a new standard for our love. What is the standard? What is the bar that we're supposed to shoot for when it comes to the way we love our brothers and sisters in the church? The standard was Jesus' love. He's the standard, and so now we look to Jesus, and we see the way that Jesus loved us, and now Jesus calls us to love one another the way that I have loved you, in humility, in service, in sacrifice, in selflessness. And so we have a new object for our love, and a new standard for our love, and then he gives us a new goal for our love. Why should we love this way? Because the whole world will know that you are mine if you love one another. Our testament to the world, friends, should be our love for one another. And so Jesus tells us here that our brothers and sisters in Christ are now the object of our love, that he is the standard for our love, and that our testimony to the world is the goal of our love. But now, what exactly should the fruit of our love look like? 
What, what, what will it look like if, if we truly do this? What does it mean for us to love one another in the church? Well, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul dealt with a church that was asking that very question. The church in Corinth in the first century was a church that was completely dysfunctional, ravaged by division and sin. And, and Paul writes to the church in Corinth reminding them of the importance to love one another, of Jesus' command to love one another. And he says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, this is what this kind of love looks like when it's lived out among you. Love is patient and kind. Remember, he's talking to the church. What, what does Christian love look like? It's patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Friends, what is our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ to look like? This is the answer. A new command I give you, Jesus says, that you love one another. By this, the whole world will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, what does it look like to love one another? Paul tells us. It's patient. It's kind. It's not envious. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Friends, does this describe your love for your brothers and sisters today? I think if we're being honest about it, Probably every single one of us here this morning has cause for repentance today. I certainly haven't been faithful in living up to these standards. I got to confess that as your pastor. There have been many times where I haven't been patient with you. I haven't loved you in a way that was not boastful or rude or arrogant. I've been guilty of all of these things. The Holy Spirit really convicted my heart this week as I was thinking about this passage. I, I think all of us need to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, when, when the world looks at our lives, when the world looks at our church, does it see this kind of love on display? I follow a guy on Twitter known as the failing pastor. It's an interesting account. This is a guy who for as far as I've been following for a couple of years has been an evangelical pastor but wrestling with the reality of a very difficult congregation and the reality of a church that seems to not really care and is just kind of slowly dying away. He calls himself the failing pastor. I was sad in this past week to discover that the failing pastor identified himself publicly. He named his name publicly, and he's no longer the failing pastor. He's just going as himself because he's left the ministry. He just walked away from it all because he was so discouraged by his experience leading the church. In one of his tweets this past week, I read, he says, I quote, where two or three Christians are gathered together, 
arguing is there in the midst of them. How sad. It's no wonder the world no longer sees any value in the church. If the church looks at us, and instead of seeing our love for one another, the kind of love God calls us to, sees infighting and bickering and arrogance and rudeness, it's not what God called us to. It's not the command Christ gave us. Friends, you might be thinking to yourself, man, Jason, this is, this is a high standard. <laughs> I mean, is, is this even possible? I mean, can it really be done? Can we live out this kind of love? I was thinking about that this week, and the answer the Lord gave me was, Jason, it's not possible. Not on our own power. No way. We can never live out this kind of love if we're just trying to do it ourselves. The only way this kind of love is possible, friends, is if we keep our eyes on Jesus and if we daily seek the Holy Spirit's power, the indwelling presence of God within us, to love one another the way Christ calls us to love. There's no other way to do it, friends. It's only by looking to Jesus and relying on God's grace and his power. And it is possible Look at Jesus' own disciples. What an incredible group. What a, what a diverse and divided, divided group. Think about, think about this, for example. In Jesus' disciples, the very ones he's calling to love one another. You've got a guy like Matthew, who was a tax collector, a Jew who was a tax collector for the Roman Empire, a guy who literally made his income by ripping off his fellow Jews on behalf of the Roman Empire. Matthew, the tax collector. On the other end of the spectrum of Jesus' disciples, you had a guy named Simon, the zealot. The zealots were a political faction in Judaism in the first century that was violently opposed to the Roman Empire. The zealots were the ones arguing that, no, 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 we shouldn't try to appease the Roman Empire. We need to overthrow the empire. And the zealots would literally kill Jewish tax collectors working for the Romans. So you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the Roman conspirator, tax collector, and these two guys come together as brothers in Christ. Friends, this would be like a guy from the Proud Boys and someone from Antifa coming together and becoming best friends. I mean, literally, that's what this would be like. And they come together and they love one another and they serve together on mission and thereby go out changing the world as the world sees the love of Christ displayed in the church. In fact, we know this took place because the whole Roman Empire was ultimately transformed by the love of Christ. The early church father, Tertullian, in the second century, writing to the Roman Empire em- emperor, beseeching him to, to cease his persecution of the church, his primary argument in his letter to the emperor, his apology, was see how they love one another. That was his argument. We're not people who deserve persecution. Why? Look at the way we love one another. And it was that love that literally transformed the ancient world. Friends, I wonder what might happen today if our community looked at our church and saw here at Lakes Free a group of people united in love for one another. 
I wonder what might happen in our nation if our nation in their primary vision of the church was one of Christians living out Christ's calling to love one another in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. What might God do? Oh, Lord, please help us love the way Jesus has called us to love. (laughs) Lastly, this morning in our passage, we see God's glory shining in the midst of this darkest of nights in the glory of God's grace. Our passage this morning ends with this interesting encounter between Peter and Jesus. Jesus has just told his disciples, I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. And and Peter, right? Peter, the bold disciple, Peter starts arguing with Jesus. Lord, no, I'm going with you, Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you lead, God. I'm with you, Jesus, all the way to the end. And Jesus says to Peter, really, Peter? Are you really with me all the way to the end? And then Jesus tells Peter, Peter, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. And of course, we know what happened. We're going to see in a few weeks Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Friends, aren't you glad you know the rest of the story with the Apostle Peter? You guys remember Paul Harvey, the great radio broadcaster? And that's the rest of the story. I'm so glad we know the rest of the story with Peter because Peter would deny Jesus, turn his back on Jesus three times, and yet Jesus would come and restore Peter. And he would lift him up and he would turn him into the great apostle who would become the leader of the early church. And friends, when we see this story in our passage this morning, we are reminded that God is in the personal restoration business. You believe that, don't you? God is in the personal restoration business. No matter how many times we turn our back on him. Like King David says in Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Isn't that good to know that that's who our God is? That's the amazing grace of our God. You know, you might be here this morning and You might be a lot like Peter. Maybe like Peter, you've boldly declared your loyalty to Jesus, maybe even hundreds of times, and yet you still find yourself denying him in your actions and your lifestyle. And if that's where you are today, I want to encourage you, don't lose heart. Because just like Peter, God can bring restoration to your life too. How does that happen? It happens when we turn to the God who is good and forgiving, whose steadfast love is abounding. And friends, if you have turned your back on God, if you have denied him in your life and in your actions, if you will confess your rebellion against him and return to him, he will forgive you, he will lift you up, he will restore you, and he will set you back on his path that leads to life and life to the full. Because he is in the personal restoration business. Let me ask you this morning, friends, have you seen the brilliance of God's glory today? I pray you have. Because we've got a God who is sovereign, a Lord who is exalted, a calling that's unrivaled, 
and an amazing grace that's free for each and every one of us. Amen? Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this awesome passage. Even in the midst of your darkest night in this world, Jesus, your glory was shining through in all of its brilliance. And I just pray, Lord, that my friends this morning have caught just a glimpse of that incredible glory, that glory that is yours, that glory that we have access to through our relationship with you, that glory that gives us hope in the midst of our darkest of nights, that glory that restores us when we stumble and fall. God, we praise you this morning for your glory. We thank you for giving us your word to to remind us of these powerful truths, to, to lead us in these visions of who you are and what you've done for us and your promises to us. And I pray, God, that our friends this morning would leave encouraged and strengthened in their faith, knowing that we serve a great and glorious God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever, and all God's people declared... Amen. God bless you. And again, mothers, happy Mother's Day. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.